Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, I'm Alessandro Gangarossa, EU Policy and Trade Senior Associate at Global Council. Today we'll be discussing the recent EU proposal on corporate sustainability due diligence. We will explore what the proposal is about, what it aims to do, uh, and what it means for businesses. Joining me today um, are my colleague Felicity Hall, Senior Associate in our sustainability practice, and Anders Remberg. Policy Advisor at Trade, Brexit and CSR at the Confederation of Swedish Businesses. Let me start uh, by setting the scene. The proposed directive uh, targets around 17,000 EU and non-EU businesses uh, with the objective of addressing adverse impacts in supply chains on the environment and human rights. It also aims to address fragmentation linked to the development and adoption of uh, national rules on supply chain due diligence with examples in Germany, in France and the Netherlands. Um, to ensure a level playing field for both EU and non-EU operators. The DAF directive essentially is built around two main pillars, one introducing mandatory supply chain due diligence requirements for companies, and second, introducing new duties for directors of EU companies. Flitz, let me turn to you first. Um, the proposal was long awaited, certainly from civil society. Uh, it was initially due in 2021, it's been delayed three times due to inner, internal disagreements in EU institutions on the process as well as on the design. But does the proposal meet the expectations around it and what really caught your eye in the proposal? Yeah, sure. That's certainly a really great place to start. Um, so, I mean, over the last year, we've seen loads of interest in this proposal. Um, we've had many different competing opinions and voices, as you can imagine. Um, and certainly, you know, also within the EU's broader sustainable finance agenda, this due diligence directive or sustainable corporate governance proposal, as it was originally titled, was very much, you know, being looked to as a marker of how far the commission is basically willing to go um, in sort of really, I guess, for lack of a better word, interfering in EU companies when it comes to sustainability. Um, so in terms of you know, whether it met the expectations, I think there's a few key points we can we can look to. Um, I think the first one is that the SMEs were kept out of the scope of the proposal. Um, and this has been a lot of where some of the debate had, had focused in the run-up to its release. Um, but I don't think this was really a, a huge surprise. And when we dive into to more of the detail of what the proposal will require of businesses, we'll quickly realize just how demanding this this will be and and therefore potentially how how detrimental some of the measures could have been for smaller businesses. So I think, you know, this was something that was that was broadly, broadly expected, broadly anticipated. Um, where perhaps there was a bit more last minute shuffle around was around some of the governance measures which had originally been discussed. Um, so a lot of the, the focus on governance was sort of stripped back. Um, and I think with with my ESG and my responsible investment hat on, you know, I know this is something that a lot of um, a lot of businesses, a lot of, of companies have been sort of quite excited to see um, to sort of see play out. Um, so it had been set to include things like linking executive pay to sustainability goals, mandating strategies to set concrete environmental targets. 
Um, now, of course, there'd been a lot of resistance to parts of that, especially in the Nordics, that this was too invasive on corporate autonomy and, and, and those sort of arguments being made. Um, but ultimately, the commission made a decision to sort of strip a lot of this out and focus simply sort of more narrowly on, on the governance of, of due diligence. So I guess, you know, to your question of whether it met expectations, this might be one of the ways where um, the sort of expectations versus the reality was was quite different. Um, and then just, just quickly onto your question of what caught my eye the most, I think the, the thing that sort of surprised me was the, the introduction of provisions um, around the Paris Agreement. Um, so basically, the, the directive, in addition to the, the due diligence elements and those sort of more narrow governance measures, also um, includes within it um, a need for companies within its scope to adopt a plan to demonstrate that the business is, and its strategy is aligned with a 1.5 degree warming trajectory, i.e. that it's aligned with, with the goals of the Paris Agreement. Um, and, and more specifically, where, where climate change is identified as, as a risk for businesses, the proposal introduces a requirement to include emissions reduction goals as part of, of climate change plans. And I think for me, this, you know, this is something that I was, I was excited to see. It sort of made up for some of the ambition, which was perhaps lost on, on governance. Um, and especially given that as part of this, it included a provision that these plans will be reinforced by a requirement to link executive remuneration to, to progress towards these transition plans. Um, so I think this was this was interesting and, and caught my eye. It will, it will add a sort of new mechanism for the EU to, to ensure businesses are being brought into line with, with the bloc's ambitious net zero agenda. Um, of course, with the caveat that this does also create a, a new and a novel policy risk um, on top of the diligence requirements for businesses. I mean, despite the uh, lower ambition on director duties, I guess this is still quite far-reaching proposal. And as you know, Swedish companies are often considered at the forefront when it comes to integrating sustainability in business models and strategies. Uh, and the proposal, in a way, might have been seen as a way to respond to calls from NGOs or uh, you know the political spectrum to make companies more accountable uh, for potential impacts on on the environment and on human rights. But the industry itself seems to be very supportive with the rationale behind the proposal, in particular the need of creating a level playing field and avoid fragmentation in the EU market. Uh, but the proposal actually achieved that, in your view. I mean, as you're saying, many companies, not least many Swedish companies, already have due diligence strategies in place. Uh, they, they are very carefully looking at their supply chains in order to make sure to avoid any any issues uh, that can arise. And they do this deeply and broadly within the supply chains. Um, but of course, uh, from, from our perspective, and as you're also mentioning, the idea of having harmonized rules on an EU level is a very, very good idea. Because we are, we do see regular uh, rules in France. We do see discussions in Netherlands, Belgium, new rules in Germany. So there are upcoming rules in many countries, uh, also outside of the EU, uh, that EU companies need to adapt to. But um, th but then it is very important that these rules are harmonized and that they actually work in that way. And to answer your question, I think there is a risk that they don't. Uh, because as we can see with this uh, uh, proposal, first of all, it's a directive rather than a regulation. We would have wanted to see a regulation, which for those who are not EU nerds basically means that it's much clearer for uh, for the what the legislation actually entails. And even more importantly, it's the same legislation in different countries. Uh, 
What we fear now is that with a directive, uh, and also given that there will be this will be administered by different administ- national administrations in different member states, uh, we can see a fragmentation where we might have the same basic rules, but where there are differences uh, in, in each and every country. And if we have that, then we also lose one of the main points with these rules being the harmonization of it. That's very interesting. And as you say, Anders, I think, you know, while the objectives are quite clear, there are still a lot of unknowns on how this directive would be implemented and enforced. Uh, and my sense is that, you know, the material impact will be really determined in uh, how member states transpose this directive into national law and how they implement the provisions. I mean, in a way, different political and regulatory cultures in in different member states might translate in also different approaches towards uh, the enforcement, as we've seen, for example, in in other areas, for example, that are protection. so, so for me, this is a key policy risk, a common set of rules with a different and variable impact for firms. But perhaps let's take a step back. Please, uh, can you briefly tell us what exactly the proposal requires companies to do? Sure. I mean, naturally, it's, it's quite a long and, and rather dry list of requirements that, that the proposal basically sets out. Um, so, you know, the first thing which, which companies will need to be doing is basically putting in place an internal due diligence policy. Um, so they'll need to describe um, how they're approaching due diligence, um, what their sort of internal steps that they're taking are, and basically sort of making very clear how they are integrating these due diligence uh, processes into their in- internal structures. Um, so this will need to include things like a code of conduct for employees and subsidiaries. Um, and, and as I say, just a really detailed sort of step-by-step description of the process. Um, so this is something that perhaps, you know, companies will have already. But from here, you get much more into the the sort of the depth of the requirements um, and and into the sort of the mandating of, of the, the, the looking into these issues. Um, so, so basically from here, companies will need to then identify their so-called adverse impacts. Um, so essentially, this is where companies will need to identify where they have exposure to environmental and human rights risks throughout their supply chain. So this will need to include both actual impacts that they can see, um, but also potential ones as well. So adding in a slight sort of gray area in that sense. Um, And the proposal basically recommends that companies, in order to do this, um, uh, conduct consultations with key stakeholders and that they use sort of what it describes as qualitative and quantitative information in order to, to sort of establish what these potential and actual impacts are. Um, from there, it sort of steps forward to actually preventing and bringing these adverse impacts to an end. Um, so here in, in the Commission's proposal, there's a number of steps which they, they recommend that businesses take in order to engage with those issues that they've identified. Um, so these include developing action plans with really clear timelines and indicators. Um, so this is in, in practice, you know, uh, a business would have identified uh, a, a sort of a potential or an actual impact on perhaps a human rights risk. Um, and then they'll need to put in place a timeline for how they'll be addressing um, with this issue, how they'll be addressing this issue, how they'll be engaging with it, the sort of steps that they'll be taking and the indicators that they'll be using to show progress towards preventing and, and bringing this adverse impact to an end. 
Um, it also includes recommendations around sort of pursuing collaboration with others to help bring these impacts to an end, which I think is, is, is important here because we think about those indirect suppliers, which are included within the scope of this, you know, working together collaboratively with shared, um, where you have shared suppliers will be really important in, in sort of advancing this and accelerating progress. Um, then the last sort of steps that companies will need to take is a sort of around monitoring and, and reporting of these risks. So they'll need to monitor them and sort of ongoing, like I said, sort of using those timelines, using those indicators, and then publish an annual statement, which basically details um, this sort of long, long list of requirements that I've just mentioned. I think when you when you start to hear that sort of list, you can really get a feel um, that this is going to be incredibly demanding for businesses. You can start to feel where that administrative burden is going to come in and where that compliance cost um, that businesses are sort of pointing to um, is going to come from, um, especially when you sort of think about the fact that this isn't just at that direct supplier level, but also going so much deeper at the level of indirect suppliers too. This is definitely a long list uh, of things to do. Um, and unless, as you were saying before, I think uh, large firms realistically are likely to already have in place some sort of list of voluntary due diligence systems. But do you think this is going to be enough for firms to comply with the requirements of the directive or more is needed? I would say that the short answer is no, but not because they're not doing the work, but because the rules are now different. Uh, prior to this, we have OECD and UN guidelines uh, for voluntary. And as you mentioned, many companies are following them, and especially large firms are following them. But they give sort of a fairly big um, uh, decision-making power to the companies themselves to, to make the conclusions on whether or not they're following the rules. Uh, so basically, they are guidelines in, in, in the very real sense of the word. They provide them with ideas on how to work. But the thing that happens when you move something from, uh, from uh, non-binding rules to binding rules is that the law comes in and that there comes in rules and that you can, that you can sanction companies for not following them. And this is where it's very, very important and where we're quite, quite worried at the moment with these rules, uh, that there are uncertainty around how to follow them. Because as, as, as you were mentioning before, there are a lot of uh, requirements and it's not always exactly clear for companies how they would pursue this or where, 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 when have they done enough? Uh, when have they done enough to mitigate the risks and have they done enough to, to manage it? Uh, the commission is doing a lot of good work on, on providing guidance, but at the end of the day, uh, this, uh, this can have, can be a matter of, of, of courts deciding whether or not they have done the right thing. And it's also up to agencies to sanction companies. Uh, and when that happens, we're quite afraid that the uncertainty in itself means that companies might leave difficult markets uh, or that they might not engage with companies in, in countries where they are not, um, where they're not, uh, where, where, where they're not used to working or where, where, where it's simply more uh, challenging. Or to take another example of that, uh, we have SMEs. Uh, as you mentioned, SMEs are not technically uh, part of, of the scope. But of course, if I am, and that's also part of the idea behind the rules, if I have a large company and Alessandro has a small company and, and I, I use you as my supplier, 
then these rules stipulate that I make sure that you follow the rules. Hence, I will require of you to follow the rules. Um, and this might also create a situation where I will, of course, ask you beforehand, uh, are you aware of the rules? Are you certified? Could perhaps be one of the options. Uh, uh, are you following them? Um, so this will put pressure also on SME companies uh, to follow these rules. So I think that's also one aspect where it's important to have clear guidance, but where companies really, really need clarity. And, and that's what we're not seeing at exactly as, as much as we want and where we hope that the upcoming process will clarify things. Uh, you, you, you raise a very valid point. I mean, uh, I think it's important also to stress again that supply chains are, are an extremely complex creature. Uh, they bring together, you know, hundreds of suppliers, uh, even more indirect suppliers that are spread in different regions, countries, jurisdictions and continents. And in some geographies, as, as you said, Anders, could be extremely challenging to get, you know, the legal assurances, the certifications required to ensure that companies are complying with the regulation. And this, as you said, might also bring the risk that uh, companies will um, restructure the supply chains um, to uh, at a disadvantage in a way to, to those regions that are more more challenging. Um, and, and that could be also bring impacts on, on the efficiencies and of the supply chain. Um, but at this point, I think it's also worth to remind our listeners that this is still a draft directive uh, and the legislative process has just started. Uh, both the European Parliament and the Council of the EU will scrutinize the proposal before negotiating uh, and agreeing on a common text. Uh, and this process uh, can take you know, several months, if not years sometimes. And after that, EU countries will uh, have two years to transpose the directive into national legislation. So quite a long process. And let's try to have a look ahead. Please, can you uh, give us a sense of obstacles and political challenges um, going forward? Sure. And, and as you've already alluded to, Alessandro, I think this proposal does face quite a, an uncertain future, certainly a bit of an uphill battle ahead. Um, I think, you know, we've already seen the extent of the disagreement on this, given the multiple delays to presenting it already, the stripping out of certain position, uh, provisions. You know, in, in this sense, it's, it's had a difficult start in life. And, and I think this is a, a theme that we can expect to, to continue. Um, I think it's worth stressing that, you know, there is pretty universal support for the concept of the proposal. I think there's there's not that many um, people in the EU that are, are disagreeing that we need to have greater oversight of environmental and human rights risks in supply chains. I think that's pretty well well established. But that definitely doesn't translate into there being widespread agreement on this iteration of the proposal and, and sort of setting some of those themes ahead. So as it enters into the political process now, you know, we can expect to see some of this disagreement emerging. So some of the things that we'll be looking out for um, include MEPs, especially from the centre and the left of the political spectrum, pushing to widen the audience of companies affected by the directive. So certainly um, towards including uh, smaller and, 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 and medium-sized businesses, um, especially where they're sort of operating in those high impact sectors. Um, pushing for sort of uh, expanding obligations on company directors, i.e. to include some of those wider requirements to consider the needs of all stakeholders when making decisions. Um, and, and sort of engaging in particular on some of these clauses around contractual assurance. Um, so basically, there's a quite a lot of concern that 
that you, by introducing a mechanism which uh, exempts businesses from civil liabilities by introducing sort of contractual assurances or basically having very good contracts in place, some have pointed that this could be sort of um, used as a bit of a loophole in the proposal, essentially meaning that it, it could boil down in practice in certain member states when it's implemented to having good contracts in place. And that's used as your sort of your way out in many sense. And I think that there will be a big push to make sure that, that this isn't this isn't the case. Of course, on on the other hand, we've got sort of that group of, of, of liberal and, and free trade uh, capitals, which will continue to, to push back against um, especially the, the provisions around director's duties um, and seek to, to continue to exclude small and, and medium firms from the scope of the requirements. Um, so lots of lots of competing voices to be managing. Um, and as, as you said, you know, given all this, it also faces a pretty tight time frame for adoption as it needs to be adopted before the end of 2024. Um, so I think, you know, definitely a, an uphill battle ahead and, and lots of different lots of different voices to be accounted for. And it's turning to you, given the material implication, these are likely uh, to emerge only in a few years time, really. Uh, why companies and investors should already think about this line now? I mean, as as we're as we've mentioned a few times, I mean, this is something that's happening for sure. I mean, I mean, you're completely right that this will take a lot of debate in terms of how it's going to be phrased and how the exact articles are going to be written. Uh, but we also know, as you mentioned in the beginning, there is a very clear support for this within the European Parliament among the member states. Uh, so these binding rules on due diligence are happening, and with that, it's important for companies to be aware that they are coming uh, to stay engaged uh, on on these issues uh, and also to follow follow the legislation uh, because uh, if they can i mean they should already be doing the the non um, the, the many companies are already doing the non binding part of the due diligence but for companies who can stay ahead of the game and also look at okay what will be the impact of these rules on my uh, on my operations for them it will also make it easier to uh, to to implement them when they are formally in place as well so so in that sense it's it's, it's something to to be aware of also already at this point um, but then because i mean at the end of the day i think everyone agrees that it companies to the need to be aware of what happens uh, within their operations we all agree on the importance of of finding ways uh, be it through companies being it being through countries uh, to strengthen human rights worldwide the issue here and the issue that's going to be part of the discussion i think is how should that be done and how should we make sure that companies are without creating too much administrative burden or even worse uh, to create box ticking exercise that doesn't that creates burden but doesn't lead to actual results how should we create legislation that both minimizes that administrative impact and costs while ensuring um, that it is uh, transparent easy to follow but also something that they can adapt quite quickly. And, and this is not going to be easy. And these rules, uh, the proposal has been put forward. It, 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 it's sort of the starting point of the discussion, or at least a formal starting point. But now things has to be clarified so that it is clear for those companies who will be implementing this. And remember, it's not only large companies. It's going to be a lot of companies and not only EU companies, but also companies outside of the EU so that they can be prepared uh, for these rules and so that they can actually do them and work in practice. That's, that's, a, that's a very good point. And I think just to sum up, I think really the, the objectives are, as we say now, uh, you know, 
politically easy to understand and to share, but the practicalities of implementation are quite complex uh, and sometimes could be also counterproductive given the objectives that we have uh, in hand here. Now, before we wrap up, uh, a question for both of you. Uh, can you tell me, in your opinion, in a few sentences, how would you think the proposal could be improved? Please, do you want to start? Sure. I mean, I think for me, and it's it's something that's interesting come up a, f- a few times in this conversation, but the, the key here is going to be um, balancing the ambition of this proposal with the potential for those sort of unintended consequences. So, I mean, we've seen huge amounts of legislation introduced globally around ESG in, in recent years. And obviously, the key is always to make sure, given a problem as pressing as climate change or as sort of nasty as companies unknowingly unknowingly fueling the abuses of human rights, you know, the key is to make sure that the policy is, is ultimately achieving that aim. And as, as Anders alluded to, there is a risk here that sort of companies run from this slightly, that they shift their supply chains in such a way that they're, they're almost sort of burying their heads in the sand rather than sort of facing these issues and engaging with them head on. Um, so that's not really a, an answer to how it can be improved, but more just something that I'll certainly be watching really closely moving forward. Um, and that will be very difficult to sort of try and try and balance um, between those two camps. I would say one word, and that word is clarity. Uh, we the, because it's, I think it's less about companies running away and more that they're forced away. And, and if 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 it, we create situations where it's simply impossible for them to know what rules to to follow if they are uh, in certain markets. Because uh, let's remember, this is going to be complex, no matter how you do it. And perhaps it has to be complex in order for it to function. But at the end of the day, companies need to be aware uh, of, of what are expected of them and how they can do that. At the end of the day, each in, in each individual company will always have to look at and uh, make, make an assessment uh, of, of the risk. But But what should be included in that and how to do that that's what we need uh, to have more clearly going forward. And to use one more word, and it, but, but it connects to the clarity, and that is the word of harmonization, because that's also part of the clarity. Uh, if this ends up with us still having 27 different rules in 27 different EU countries, um, then we don't have that clarity, and we don't have harmonization. And I think that loses sort of the, the logic of this, but also because we want it to be we want it to be clear um, what to what to, what is expected of the companies, and we want them to be able to learn from each other from different countries uh, uh, using di- the same suppliers in different places. And that means that we have to have the same rules, uh, and that we have to have clear rules. That that's all very clear. Uh, thanks, and you know personally, I see that. You know, companies right now seems to be faced with more sticks than carrots, right? Because, you know, the prospects for significant new compliance and administrative costs are evident. But at the same time, the prospect for reduced fragmentation and policy clarity are not. Um, and this is definitely something that, uh, will be a central part of the legislative process ahead and the discussions ahead. As always, uh, if you, your businesses or your investment is exposed to the corporate sustainability due diligence proposal, or you just want to talk about it, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find our contact details on the GC website at www.globalafincouncil.com or through the link in the podcast notes. 
Please, Anders, thank you very much for the interesting conversation today and thank you all for listening. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council. Thank you.